Welcome everyone to uh, class two, second class. <laughs> On the obsessive mind. And someone asked me uh, before the start of the class if I found this series of the distortions of mind um, somewhere in the classical Buddhist literature. And I didn't. <laughs> I just, I found them in the minds of the students I teach. <laughs> That's classical enough for me. <laughs> so I, uh, I put together the class really based upon uh, patterns that I've seen over and over again in all of us, if we're honest. And uh, there are the different manifestations of clinging, really. Patterns that are formed around clinging. Once the mind goes out and uh, grasps, grasps a hold of something, if it does that often enough, it exercises certain muscles called a character, and patterns of character begin to generate and form around a particular way that we cling. And so, what we're describing here are really four patterns of clinging. The first Last week was the use of control as a way to establish a certain security and presence and safety within the world. And because our needs are such that we need that kind of safety as long as we are holding the form of individuality, of separation, we need a sense of, of, um, of absolute trust that what the world's going to be like and we perform that sense of trust through our individuation, through our sense of control. Uh, and therefore, we never really see the trust that's inherent in the universe. We only know the trust that's inherent in our manipulation of things. So this week, uh, we go a step further in that direction. Last week, when we talked about trust, it, um, and uh, I mean, when we talked about control, control has a very different, definite sense of a sense of self controlling, does it not? It seems as if I am controlling. Therefore, I am in control. I'm the power broker of the situation. When we talk about obsession, we are no longer in control. The mind is in control. And we are being driven by a particular pattern and are completely out of control in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> so, it's, it's as if for a moment there's such a passion, an overwhelming need, such a link between the obsess, the obsession, in the sense that this has um, uh, an urgency associated with it, a drive uh, often accompanying it, uh, that we really have no space at all around it whatsoever. The mind is clamped shut around a particular activity. And um, 
What I would like to do tonight is sort of pick apart that, that behavior. And now I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about psychotic, the psychotic mind here. <laughs> We're talking about the normally miserable mind. <laughs> I mean, I'm reminded of a uh, Freudian, uh, Freud said, he says, uh, the best I can do is exchange your neurotic misery for ordinary human unhappiness. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it never seems to go doesn't seem to go quite far enough from my point of view. So we're talking about the ordinary neurotic tendencies of obsession here, not the compulsive stereotypes that we read about. But actually, you know, when I was a little child, about five or six maybe Somebody told me the nursery rhyme of, you know, if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. I didn't know any different, so I avoided cracks. And to this day, <laughs> it's not a light thing. <laughs> I mean, it's a light thing now, but it's not the way the mind builds upon the innocence of belief. It's not a light thing. I can re try not to step on a crack when you live on hardwood floors, <laughs> which we did. <laughs> you know, you be, and you can see how a whole system of behavior comes into play to sort of circumnavigate navigate something that has no foundation in reality but has a foundation in belief. And that belief becomes the reality and is never substantiated. And then you forget the belief and you just hold on to the behavior and it becomes self-reinforcing. Well, my mother's back never broke, so it must work, right? That's the kind of, it's like this, the man who's in Indiana was beating on his drum and his neighbor comes out and says, why are you beating on the drum? And the neighbor says, well, I'm keeping the elephants away. And the man says, there are no elephants in Indiana. And he says, see, it works. <laughs> That's the way we, we organize our thinking. So to understand this, and I think tonight we'll touch everyone here, and some of us many times, I, as we look at some of the behaviors that come from the sense of obsessiveness, Obsessive thoughts. And uh, I think the first thing that we want to look for are the rules that obsess obsession plays by. And the first thing that we need to know about obsession is that behind it, there is an emotional center that's driving the obsession. That there's some emotion or some uh, passion or urgency to it. And often, around that emotion at one point or other, there were self-beliefs that also were generated. So we're getting into very deep sense of structures of how the self is put together when we look at the world of obsession. How about circular thinking? See, we're going to touch it, and here we go. That, those thoughts that just keep coming back, you know, because of uh, an incomplete action, or an exchange that didn't go very well, you know, a conversation, 
and you sit down in your meditation or just throughout the day, you begin to obsess circular thinking again and again, bringing that situation up again and again, looking at it. Right? We've all had that, haven't we? That's obsessive thinking. And what we're not seeing is that we're trying to play the game through the content of the thought of that particular situation as it unfolded. And because it unfolded in the past, it can't be corrected. And so we're held, we're, we hold a sense in ourselves within this circular thinking of, of an awkwardness or a, a feeling of incompletion within ourselves, which accentuated, which is accentuated often through a sense of inadequacy that we hold. And so this plays upon our self-inadequacy. And so if we can just go back, let the content, the circular thinking just go, because it really cannot be resolved, but go to the emotion, the hub of the wheel that's driving the, the, the wheel around in its circular motion, to go to the hub, the, emo, the emotion that is there, and to see what that emotion is, to see, to feel that emotion. Because often, the emotion is behind the scenes, driving the thinking. It's the thinking that we're aware of, and we're not aware of the emotion itself. So if we just bring that forward so that we can be aware of the emotion that seems to be stimulating this kind of thinking. And if there are any self-beliefs associated with that, including strong sense of, of the uh, unworthiness, you know, the insufficiency, often you can find those tied somewhere around that emotion. So it's very important to include, I, I think we make a mistake in our meditation practice when we just go, uh, you know, we're angry or we're upset uh, and we just go to that feeling and we just kind of stay there with that and we think that we're meditating and that we're being open to what it is occurring. And for a long time, just having some base, some step, some presence within, some attention within that emotion feels sufficient. But really, if we're looking at it very carefully, there's a lot of aversion going on and even taking that step into the emotion. And we're kind of waiting for it to end or we're trying to dispel it in some way and or we're paying attention in order for it not to have the grip that it usually has upon us. And there's often that sense of Alter, uh, ulterior motive working behind our meditation practice. And the way we can get a hold of that is to go deeper into that emotion, into the, to the actual thoughts that are being stimulated from that emotion in terms of the, the deeper sense of, of posture associated with that emotion. The deeper sense of, of myself and my own relationship to that emotion. Who I am and how, I, how I'm really able to hold it, how I stand in relationship to it. If I feel over, overwhelmed by it, or I'm just, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's often an attitude that we need to include in these even beginning steps of our meditation to see it much more complete. And that's what we're talking about tonight in terms of obsessive thoughts. Just to play upon the obsession, say, yes, obsessing, obsessing, yes, I'm obsessing, obsessing, does nothing to, to unwind us from the coil of that, of that pattern. Now, some of us have 
another form of obsession is that we have we find uh, in relationships let us say that the same tendencies come forward every single time every relationship I get so close and then I begin to back away in self-protection or something or I get very needy and try to grab a hold and try to make that person into my salvation and often we can see if we just look reflectively and I don't think we stress strongly enough in this tradition reflection reflection is the art of being a lay Buddhist and when we're in retreat it's not encouraged because thought isn't encouraged we're, we're at, at a different level of silence in our being and and so we're not we're not playing with thought we're looking at thought as a process rather than as an informer of patterns but as a lay Buddhist one of the tools which is a very important tool is reflection to look reflectively at your life and see what patterns have held you in place time and time again through jobs every job that you go friendship right relationship food the biggies <laughs> and to see whether there's, a, there's an obsessing quality to that oftentimes we find people who are what well, doesn't it can of any age really having a kind of a neediness in relationship let us say that a kind of a grasping neediness and the other person feels it and they feel strangled they feel smothered within that and inevitably they leave because they can't stand that kind of dependency being placed upon them and we don't know anything else but to strangle We've never looked at the emotion. We've never looked at what the, what, the, what the reason for that strangle, what the reason for that grasping out is. We just know the, the feeling of it. To come to some of that deep sense of self-worth. We're saying, in effect, when we do that, when we operate that, that unless you love me, I'm not lovable. And we believe in our unlovability, our self unlovableness you see this is this is the exciting quality of being alive to me is to make this a laboratory but it can only be a safe laboratory when you don't when we don't bring the judgment to bear upon this lab look how offline look how needy I am isn't that you know the the backlash effect of self-knowledge is self-misery it's what we do to ourselves when we see self-knowledge from a sense of inadequacy as we make it into a miserable story right. and so we actually whip ourselves twice once in the scene and once in the reaction we might as well just take a whip and do what they do must be in relationship I have to be in relationship why do we have to be in relationship just to ask ourselves that why do we have to be in relationship why is that why are we driven in that way why is that so important what is it what's the emotion that's driving that what's the sense of self-belief that's 
leading to that? Why is that so important? Why is that so... You see? I want to know that. I don't want to live a life and die feeling like I wasn't complete because I didn't have a, a this or a that. This is the way we actually come to So I'll just leave it here. See, the way we come to hold us is through the fractured qualities of self. And so what we're looking at in these fourth series is, is how we fracture ourselves, how the bottle is broken, and we have to pick up the pieces and understand all the edges of the pieces and how they bite and how they... So some of the uh, obsessive behaviors that we have, um, obsession on body image. We have a, a real problem in that one. Uh, and how there's a whole governance of exercise and um, eating uh, around that and attention to health and the vitamins, you know, and the latest uh, health food, like fish oil or, you know, it's like, you hear, and then you hear uh, three months or four months or six months or one year later you hold exactly the contradictory evidence. And, it's like, and, and yet we're so, we get so obsessive about that. As if, I bet all the health remedies that we have used in our lives probably hasn't added a year. <laughs> but the worry and fanaticism associated with it has worn us down at least to the effect of that year. <laughs> much, much worse is the tight mind that obsesses around those qualities than the health that's attributed to them, to the taking of them. And often, the body image is so associated with a sexual obsession, really. I, I remember uh, seeing a documentary on Kennedy when he was president, and that uh, he was his um, secretary at some one point, that, um, uh, and the secretary was setting up a a meeting or a relationship meeting for one of his um, many extramarital affairs. And at one point she just said to him, um, why do you keep doing this? And he says, um, he said to her, I can't stop myself. Can't stop ourselves, you know. I, I refuse to buy that one. I mean, oh yes, yeah, I give full credit to the fact that at times we're all out of control. But to whitewash it and say, I can't stop myself, is to say that there is no freedom in this world. That there's no chance for growth. And I do not believe that. I believe, yes, it may be difficult, but how about our obsession with death, our fear of death? 
discussion with fear of death ethicism, isn't it? Sometimes we'll, we'll be going along forever and suddenly someone in our life died. And all of a sudden it brings us to a kind of insecurity. And we're all of a sudden checking on when my daughter is going to be home, in which I would have never done that kind of... that sort of detail awareness before, but now everything matters kind of is a critical insecurity. So fear of death can be an obsession. And most of us obsess on that unconsciously. And we do it through the use of time. We do it through casting a denial across the face of the planet and saying, well, tomorrow or next year, that is an obsession with death. And the obsession is forming itself in a form of denial. So we hold the denial. We keep projecting the denial because of the fear. And we can't survive without that denial. It's too overwhelming to It's not intentional. The mind out of control. Perfectionism. I love this one. I, do, I keep hammering on it because it's, we wink at it. And it's such a disastrous wink. Because it's so neurotic. We can't leave something alone. There's no room for fault. There's no being human in perfectionism. And we, oh, she's a perfectionist. As if that was, uh, I mean, we should just, we should be concerned about that behavior, not dismiss it with a wink. It's, it's a tragic, painful place to be in, where everything is a, is a statement of self. In the world, if it's not perfect, you see, we feel so imperfect inwardly that we decorate the world in a perfect way to complement or to to assuage or to cover that sense of incompletion in ourselves. At least there's something here, and it's me who did it. And therefore, by example, I feel so blemished inside that my actions must be unblemished outside, so that I can constantly pretend and be something different, something that's noble. You know, this is a safe place. The meditation, and hopefully this group is growing to be a safe place, where blemishes are what we work with. They're not problems. They're opportunities that we can bring forth as a group, own them all. I'm owning them. I haven't said anything that's not in me. that we can talk about them as human beings together, not try to pretend anymore. You know, I have a feeling that none of us are going to fully awaken until all of us fully awaken, because we hold in our distortion and projection the other person's problem, and we force that person to act from our own distorted way of seeing the world. And we just distort, it's like two distorted mirrors facing each other. And our unwillingness 
to really open our hearts to the to the inevitable human fallacies and problems is one of the ways that we hold ourselves distortedly. And I see you, or you see me as a teacher, and you say, well, if I held myself in some kind of artificial way, then you would be forced, because you would believe that that artificial way was what we, I had to attain in order to be perfect. And that's why teachers or gurus hold such dominance over their students because it's a it's a it's a incomplete understanding of what it means to be a human being. I have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. You have to be free. And that can only come through owning your imperfections. Because it can only come through the willingness to make it your laboratory. And you can't do that if you're feeling that other people are judging you along the way. You can't, we can't do that if we feel that other people are constantly weighing in on that imperfection in some way or other. It's enormous strength to stand up to that kind of public scrutiny. And that's why we need, that's what the, one of the values of Sangha is, we need as a group of people to offer some space in that process, some relief, some relief. Here, it's okay that we're not all wrong. It's okay that we've made mistakes. It's called forgiveness. Impulsive cleanliness. That's another one, isn't it? I was mentioning last week about my own parents and how they... I never felt I could sit on a chair in the living room. And, like, and certainly not put your feet on it. Checking behavior is the epitome of not trusting. It's like when you set the alarm clock and then Five minutes later, you've got to make sure that you set the alarm clock and you pull the little thing. But you, and then you do it like 15 times. <laughs> Making sure the lights are out. <laughs> that my car hasn't been scratched in the middle of the night. <laughs> And then, of course, the most painful one of all is that self-checking that we do. How am I doing? Oh, God, the cry of the, the, cry of the pain from that. You see, how am I doing? Am I doing okay? Looking into another person's eyes for that sense of self-acceptance. Please give it to me. And what, is, what do we do with that, you know? What do we do with that? Compulsive shopping? Well, we feel so um, worn 
out that to buy something new at least feels like a breath of fresh air because you have nothing new inside of yourself. You see the, you see the motion, you see the stance, you see the posture that these things come out of. That's the posture is where I want to take us now. Not the behavior. The behavior is, it's the posture. It's that inward poverty. So the first thing to know about obsessive behavior is that posture, is the emotion that's driving it. Very important. Second thing is to understand that within obsession, when we obsess, we have lost the contextual reference point of the situation. We can't reference. There's no space. It's only this. It's only, I've got to do this. You see? It's like, it's, like, it's like driven. I've got to do this. It's like the aliens. <laughs> There's no space between you and the aliens. Between ourselves and the obsessed. <laughs> In Buddhism, they talk about clear comprehension. Clear comprehension is the breadth of space. Space is the antidote to obsession. Hmm? Makes sense, doesn't it? When you can see it in perspective, when you can see it in context, when you can look at something in context, a behavior in context. You know, now, when I think I have to step on the crack, or I don't step on the crack, it's in context. I know what the mind's about. It just doesn't have any holes. But, so that's what we're doing. As we discover the mind, we're discovering the context. We're giving it space. We're giving it breadth. We're giving it width. You see? And you can relax around it. It's the relaxation that is the space. It is the, it is the, when we are afraid of something, there's no space to it. We're afraid of not doing this action because of what lies behind the action that we're so convinced is true, we have to be action. We coupled the posture with the activity. It's a closed loop. Automatic. It's like the doctor hitting your knee and your knee jerks up. It's an automatic. And so we have to breathe, breathe space into that. have to be able to have it have a different kind of context and so it's very important to understand that for these behaviors space is what is needed mental space seeing it for what it is the third is to understand that one of the payoffs of obsession is excitement is drama, is that it creates a kind of away from the routine and the ordinary, and sometimes obsessive, obsessive behaviors like some of the ones we've been talking about are a form of chaos. 
in ourselves, and chaos is a kind of is a kind of a, an awakening has an awakening quality to it. A lot of adrenaline comes through that, and so some people are find themselves again and again in a chaotic situation. I had a nurse friend who every family she went out to see, she would she would come back and. It would be a chaos, you know, she has to do this and she has to do that and she would make this whole drama around it. And her life was that drama as well. And she was always breaking up with this person, starving with this one. And then she was always on the phone, you know, it was like one, one crisis after another. Living with that crisis. We know people like that. And we're oftentimes, I'm sure, we also fall into that way of being. And that the crisis somehow gives us a sense of being alive. What a way to be alive. So, there can be an addiction to stimulation. And so we have to be able to see that within the obsessive behavior, that it's stimulating us in some way. There's an excitement to it, like sexual excitement. And, and what the underlining self-affirmation of that is that anyone that can handle this much adversity must be worth a lot. Must really be somebody, huh? If I can handle all these crises at once, see the sense of self-importance coming through that? The truth is, I'm afraid to be who I am in silence. And so I'll make as much noise as I can. I'll ring as many bells as I can. Keep the gong going, so that I don't have to be with myself in silence. Because that is where my real fear is. And even though chaos is uncomfortable, silence is intolerable. And so we have to know who we are in silence in order to begin to breathe the space that is required within these obsessions, to free ourselves from these obsessions. The fourth point that I want to make tonight is how our practice can lead to obsession. And unless we're very aware of that, we can get sidetracked real quick. And concentration practice in particular can lead to that. When you're just focused on one thing and the breath, boy, just let me get to the breath, all oh, the breath. You'll find especially on long retreats, not in your daily sitting, because you won't have sufficient length of time to do it, but on long retreats, just concentration practice, the mind only knows to hold one thing without any perspective or clear comprehension of other things. And I've seen many people come off of long retreats, even teachers who are teaching now, in which their mind is held, has learned to, to hold, and they make a crisis, and they make a... Uh, they blow it far into far greater proportion, like a relationship. I've got to have a relationship. Because the mind has learned to focus and to particularize one thing and not to see it balanced in balanced perspective. And that's an overtrained 
mind. That's an over-focused mind. That is not, in Vipassana practice, we balance that with space. The space is the equalizer, is the balance. It's the samadhi, the oneness of mind. Mental harmony. Not, samadhi is not concentration. Concentration is particularizing and exaggerating the importance of it. Samadhi is oneness of mind. Mental harmony, where the mind is equanimous. It's not moving, but it has space to see. You see? You see how this... And we can get caught in to a particular sense of rapture within some of the quieter mind states in this particular tradition. And the mind states generate a kind of calming that we don't even, we don't even know who we are. It's so beautiful. There's such sublime states of being. And we just want to nurture them, nurture them, because what they're saying to us and the posture we're taking is that, my God, maybe I'm this too. Maybe I'm even better. Maybe I'm not as bad as I thought. Maybe these sublime states tell me that I'm even, I can grow into a different me, the sublime me, <laughs> instead of having to be who I am. And so they become obsessive. One. And you'll find those states if you keep practicing. But their obsession, it's not clarity, it's not space. I remember sitting in Burma, and in Burma is a very strict style. You follow your breath, notice a thought, come right back to your breath, notice this, right back to your breath, and just on your breath, boom, like a drumbeat. So my mind was like, Psh. So there are ants that came in from outside my room were making a line into the wall, a hole in the wall. And I look, I can't live with it. I cannot live with it. And I just, every time I said it, it would build, because it was like, it reverberated in my entire country. There's nothing else there, but I cannot live with it. <laughs> so, you know, you take these precepts not to kill, you take your broom, you sweep them out, they come right back in. <laughs> So you do, you go back the second time, you sweep them off the ledge. <laughs> they come back up the ledge into your room. And you say, I don't care, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> because there's no space to see oneness. There's no space to feel interconnected. It's just you and the ant. <laughs> you see? Call that freedom? <laughs> And the fifth component of obsession is the humility component of obsession. To, to understand the enormous and have enormous respect for the power of the mind. It's like humbling. Whoa, this is really amazing. I'm not going to let it go, but I'm just going to, whoa, this is really, really difficult. Let's find those areas of difficulty in ourselves, difficulty. Those areas of enormous difficulty. And let's look at them. And in some ways we just, we have to truly be humble for them. But unrelenting at the same time. Okay? 
It's difficult. I honor it. It's enormous. But you're not getting away. <laughs> I'm going to be right here with you. See, that's it. That's it. That's what's needed. Never. No, no matter what. You go this way, that way, it's like a fucking bronco. Look at that Just riding the bull. And the bull begins to settle down. Settle down. So what are some of the ways that we can work with practical action? Please don't pick up one of the homework when you need to because that's one of the ways. What are some of the other ways? One thing, we can ritualize our obsessions. Like if we have an obsession with food, or we have to eat, or we have to... We ritualize, okay, we're going to bring, we're going to start preparing the food and we're going to bring space into the preparation. Slowly, mindfully, we bring the food out, we cook it. You know, we bring a ritual around our obsession by, provi by providing space and timing. You see how you can breathe space into it? Okay, so it's, I've got to call him. I need him. I need him. I've got to have this relationship. Okay? Take out his phone number, you sit down. Okay, you spend five minutes just following your breath. Pick up the receiver, get a certain... You know, the whole thing could be ritualized. And in the ritualization of something, we bring pace rather than fanaticism. We bring space rather than tightness. We bring clear comprehension rather than immediacy. Another good way to do this, if you like, if this works for you, is to take the obsession and go out somewhere where you're all alone and exaggerate. I need him! 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 And make it to the point where you begin to smile. Because then you will allow it not to be so serious, which is bringing space to it. It's that tension of seriousness that keeps us so defined, that keeps the behavior so defined and so important. And so if you exaggerate it, so take one of your obsessions, well, take one of our obsessions and just exaggerate it to the point where it becomes absolutely ridiculous in your eyes. And with a smile, with that smile, we began to say, oh, okay, wow, all right. And, as I mentioned, to get a hold of the thoughts, write down the thoughts which seem to be so compulsive, that seem to be such the posture behind the obsession. Write them down and ask yourself whether these thoughts are true or not. Ask yourself, is that, is that true? I need this. Is that so true? Is that true? See? And then write down a, an, an argument against that. And then when it comes up, because you will now know 
the thoughts that are associated with, you begin to say no. The mind begins to go, blah, blah, blah. no, I'm not going that way. I'm not going to do that. I don't have to follow it. I know it's crazy. I don't have to follow it. I don't have to put my hand into the fire with the thought. I just say no. That takes a long time to be able to say no. Now I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about an obsession that's worth having. That's the obsession of the heart. What you'll find as you uncover, as you get into the process, as you get into the excitement and the joy of uncovering who you are, who we are, the heart loves it. The heart delights in it. The heart just wants more of it. It's like a moth to a flame. Self-knowledge is a positive addiction because it's an addiction towards wholeness, not out of fear, but towards love and towards an awakening of the heart. And that is, has a magnetic pull that will, whatever obsession we have pales by comparison to the pull of that one. And that one we can just relax right into. Just move right into that one. And have complete trust and faith that the heart knows the way. And the last. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.